0: You're listening to the RUF at Western Carolina University podcast. RUF is a campus ministry that exists to reach students for Christ and to equip them to serve Christ, His church, and His world. For more information, follow us on Instagram. we at RUFATWCU. Or look us up online at www.ruf.org. Thanks for listening. All right, so if this is your first time at RUF, welcome, uh, and I'm sorry. Um, this is going to be a little bit awkward for all of us. Um, yeah, we're talking about sex tonight, so the title, uh, the Taylor Swift title that I've chosen, because there's no other candidate, is simply lover, yeah. and that's all I'll say about that. Um, Yeah, this is an awkward topic, uh, and I just want you guys to know at the outset that I'm very aware that it's also a sensitive topic for many people. Uh, In a room this size, it's like statistically a guarantee that there are people in here who are embarrassed by the topic. Uh, There are people who are ashamed when we talk about this topic, either because you struggle with sexual addiction or because you struggle with shame uh, for things that you've done in your past, maybe for things that have been done to you. Uh, And I just want to make sure you guys know that I'm aware of that. The goal of this sermon tonight is not to, like, embarrass you or myself or to shame you uh, or to, like, lay any weight on your shoulders. Uh, What I want to do tonight is try and explain the Bible's view of sex uh, so that we see it in all of its goodness and power and purpose. And, like I do every week, I want to point us to Jesus. Uh, the one who takes away our shame. Uh, if you read the Gospels, one of the striking things about Jesus is how often he associates with the sexually broken. He's like a magnet to people who are wounded by the fall. Uh, if you read John 4, this encounter with the woman at the well, um, she's a Samaritan, she's a woman, he's Jewish, he's a man, and yet they have this like long conversation Where over the course of the conversation it comes out that she's been married five times and now she's living with a man who's not her husband. Like unacceptable and really shaming and obvious in that day. And yet he moves towards her and she becomes a believer because she can tell that Jesus has grace and love for her. Uh, One of his best friends was most likely a prostitute, Mary Magdalene. Uh, Many scholars think that she was a prostitute if you read the Gospel of John, towards the end, um, he's hanging out with this guy named Simon, and a woman comes in who uh, John describes as a sinner, which in the Gospels is generally a euphemism for a prostitute, and she anoints, his head with, uh, she anoints his feet with perfume and washes his feet with her tears and her hair, and Jesus doesn't cast her out, but he welcomes her in. Like, Jesus welcomes the sexually broken, because he's the one who has healing for the sexually broken. So I want us to end like seeing him and his beauty and his goodness and his welcome. Uh, also, I'm going to try and speak candidly, but not crassly, which means that I'm going to sound like an old fuddy-duddy several times tonight. Just give me a pass on it, all right? Um, to get into this awkward topic, we're going to read 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. So here we go. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ, and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Never. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth it reveals to us about who you are, who we are, and what you've done to bring us back to yourself. Father, as we talk about this awkward topic of sex tonight and your design for it, Uh, I pray that you would give us clarity in our thinking, uh, help us to see through all the confusion and mixed messages that we get uh, all over the place, and instead see your good design for sex, uh, help us to value it, um, hold it in high regard, um, but not idolize it. Do this, we pray. We ask it in Christ's name, Amen. All right, so I want to start talking about just some of the confusion that exists around sex. Um, We're going to start with confusion that you guys get, that we all get from like just the world in general, right? And that could be social media, that could be movies and television, that could be campus life, right? That could be novels, like any kind of input that we get into our lives. What is the message? that the world is sending to us about sex. Uh, Several different things, but first, uh, maybe most common, it's just an appetite, right? Uh, Look again at verses 12 and 13 in our passage. Uh, Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians, uh, and it seems like in this he's quoting some things that they have said to him, right? All things are lawful for me, and Paul says, but not all things are helpful, right? And then all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything, Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, right? Sex is just an appetite, right? When I'm hungry, I eat. When I'm thirsty, I drink. When I'm aroused, I take care of that too, right? Find a consenting partner, go to that website, whatever. It's just an appetite that needs to be satisfied. So don't take it too seriously, right? Don't make sex such a big deal, right? It's just an appetite that needs to be satisfied. And that means that we can satisfy it whenever we want to, whenever we need to, whenever we feel like it. So that's the first message I think that we get from the world. Uh, it's just an appetite. It's casual. It's no big deal. Uh, but also we get the message of it being incredibly important, right? Like, and I think many of you guys feel this if you have ever tried for more than like five minutes to follow the sexual ethic of the Bible, right? Because what happens is you feel weird, right? Or maybe you don't feel weird, but you feel like everybody else around you looks at you and like thinks you're weird, or pities you, right, because guys, you're, uh, like, less manly if you're not having sex. Or girls, maybe you feel viewed as a prude because you're not having sex. You're not willing to do that. Um, There was a movie that came out when I was in, I can't remember if it was high school or college, um, called The 40-Year-Old Virgin, right, and they explored this idea of just, like, how sad, he's 40 years old and he hasn't had sex yet, right, like he's weird, he's to be pitied, and today, like, that movie would be, like, the 19-year-old virgin, right, like, let's look at a 19-year-old and be like, oh, they haven't had sex yet, like, that's so, that's so sad, they're, they're to be pitied because sex is so important, right, and so it, it's assumed in dating relationship that, like, sex legitimizes that relationship, or, Um, Like, it's just assumed that if you've been dating for any length of time, you're having sex because it's so important. And the importance of sex, like, pushes it to the level of, like, you're not allowed to say anything at all about anyone's sexuality. Right? The only forbidden thing when it comes to sex is that we would forbid something sexual. Right? Because it's so important. I want to pause for a second and just point out that's confusing right? That's contradictory. Those are the message, those are the, I think, the two clearest messages that you get from the world about sex. It's incredibly important, and it's no big deal. And you should say, like, well, which is it, right? Like, is it everything, or is it, like, is it not that big a deal, right? It can't be both of those things, right? There's confusion in the world about sex. We're obsessed with it, we hear about it all the time, but there's confusion. There's not this, this cohesive message about it. One more confusion. Uh, This one's funny to me. Marriage is where sex goes to die. Right? Um, Think about the TV shows, the movies that you watch, and try and come up with a married couple that really enjoys sex, right? That it's satisfying, that it's not awkward, right? It's pretty rare. There are examples out there, but much more often you get the sitcom trope of a married couple who's trying to spice things up. Right? So in modern family, uh, Phil and Claire are, you know, things are getting a little boring in the bedroom. So what do they do? They go to a hotel and role play that they're strangers who meet to pick each other up, right? And that's supposed to reinvigorate their sex life. Again, Christians are weird in this, right? Because the world responds to, to something like that with things like open marriages or polyamory because variety is the spice of life, Right? And why would you only want to have sex with one person for the rest of your life? The Bible teaches that sex is a gift that God gives to strengthen marriage, and the world says that marriage is the most boring place for sex, right? A total 180-degree turn, right? Lots more we could talk about here, but here's the common thread with the world's view of sex. It's about me, right? It's about my needs. It's about my desires. It's about my appetites, my preferences, and if something is primarily about me, then it can't be loving, because love is self-giving, not self-seeking. So the culture, in all of its confusion about sex, has this one thing consistent. It's not about you, it's about me. Right? Sex is about me meeting my needs. All right, confusion from the world. Unfortunately, we also get confusion from the church. Um, lots of different church backgrounds here, lots of varied experience, I'm sure, um, so this may not be exactly you, but it's not uncommon for people to come and spend like their whole lives in a church and never have heard sex talked about at all, right? Maybe that's confusion, maybe it's awkwardness, maybe it's the sensitivity of it, maybe the youth pastor is scared of the parents, of their kids, like, why are you telling my kids that sex exists? Um, but it's just not talked about. And so what's communicated in that silence is that we're not allowed to talk about this. Right, it's not safe, or it's somehow shameful in and of itself, and that's just not true, right? Um, I don't know any other way to put this, but like, sex was God's idea, and He designed it for us, not accidentally, right? Like He designed you to enjoy sex, right? He's not ashamed of it; it was His idea. He's actually really happy with it because it's a gift that he gives to his people, right? So not talking about it at all doesn't help. Sometimes the church um, talks about it in unhelpful ways. Some of these might uh, feel familiar to some of you. Um, Sex outside of marriage will just inevitably make you feel bad. Anybody hear that in the church? Like, don't have sex outside of marriage. It won't be satisfying. Guys, sex is designed to feel good. It's designed to be fun. And even if we use it in ways that we shouldn't, it's going to feel good. Right? That's the way it was designed. There's this great book uh, by Lauren Winter called Real Sex. uh, And in it she says this, To acknowledge that premarital sex or any sinful act might feel good is not to say that it is good. It is rather to say that our feelings are not always trustworthy. Right? So if the church, in the way it talks about sex, suggests that like, the only time sex is ever going to be good is in marriage. That's a lie, right? And that's unhelpful because it, it, it gives us false expectations about what this gift is. All right, so misconception number one. Misconception number two, um, women don't have sex drives, right? Who got that implication from your church growing up? Probably many in this room. Uh, and I think they give this implication in a couple ways, right? Girls often get warned uh, against boys being too pushy right, girls, okay, great, go on the date, don't let the guy talk you into having sex, right, don't give in to his pressure, don't let him manipulate you into sleeping with him, right, or when we talk about modesty, which we'll come back to at the end, uh, the only thing that comes up is what girls wear, right, because girls don't struggle with sexual temptation, the implications of those messages, one, boys are sex crazed, little hormone controlled brutes, so watch out, like it's okay to laugh, this is awkward, laughing will help, like, <laughs> disseminate some of the tension, okay? The implication of that is that boys are sex-grazed little hormone-controlled brutes, so watch <laughs> out for them. Number two, the other implication of that, if, like, all of the warnings about sex are given to girls, and all the, in, like, encouragement towards modesty is given to girls, is that sexual temptation isn't something that girls struggle with, only boys. Which means that for some of you women, you you carry with you some shame about, like, Feeling temptation there, right? About being sexual, having sexual interest or thoughts, right? Maybe you thought, what's wrong with me? Because you got the implication from your church that women don't struggle with sexual temptation. Lauren Winter, again, says, Rather than spending our unmarried years stewarding and discipling our desires, we have become ashamed of them. We persuade ourselves that the desires themselves are horrible. Uh, Misconception number three. Sex before marriage is the unpardonable sin, right? That's the worst thing that you can do. Um, Again, misconception, not what I'm saying. Um, Because when we talk about it, right, like, hush tones, whispers, did you hear that, like, that person, they had sex? Like, did you hear that she's pregnant? That means that she had sex. Um, Like, and just kind of the, the way we talk about it is, like, you're you're dirty or you're unclean or, like, you've given part of yourself away and you can never get it back, um, leads to this kind of, like, don't you dare cross this line. I think, too, the, um, the way we talk about accountability groups feeds into this misconception. Um, I don't know how accountability groups work with women or if you do them or what, uh, but with guys, it often goes something like this, Hey, I've been struggling with some sexual temptation. Can, like, me and you and maybe a couple other guys, like, meet weekly or monthly to just, like, be honest and hold one another accountable? Uh, And that's good, right? We're supposed to encourage one another, help one another in our pursuit of holiness. Um, But that's the only thing I ever hear guys holding one another accountable for, right? Like, where's the accountability group for my deep struggle with generosity, right? Like, Have you ever heard somebody come up and say, "Hey, I'm really struggling with being selfish. Can we meet like once a week so that we can talk about that?" Or, "I'm really struggling with impatience, right?" And it almost kind of communicates that if we get this right, then we'll be fully formed, mature Christians, right? And I have news for you: you cannot look at porn and still be a jerk, right? Like just because like your Christian discipleship isn't just your sexuality, right? It's part of Christian discipleship, and it's part of your growth in holiness, but it's not the totality of it. And a failure in this area does not translate to a failure in the Christian life as a whole. All right? So those are some of the misconceptions, I think, that we get from the church about sexual sin, sexual temptation, and just sex in general. Um, okay. So we've got the world's view of sex. It's, like, selfish, kind of self-centered. Um, And then we have the Bible's sexual ethic, which is really kind of easy to articulate because it's like so straightforward. Uh, A man and a woman in the safety and security of marriage, right? That's, That's what sex is designed for. But that feels so foreign to every other message about sex we're given, right? It feels restrictive, right? God, why give me these desires if I have to wait to be married to fulfill them? And I think. That if you're thinking about sex the way that the world does, then yes, that sexual ethic of the Bible feels ridiculous. It feels restrictive, it feels repressive and regressive and other negative RE words. Um, but I don't, like, this isn't what the Bible thinks about sex. I think if we can, like, explain and explore what the Bible actually does say about sex, then the sexual ethic of the Bible will make more sense. So that's what I wanna try and do for the rest of our time. What does the Bible actually say about sex? What is it for? What does it do? First thing, uh, sex is for pleasure. Right? Mentioned this already, but want to reiterate it is a good gift that God gives for a husband and wife to enjoy one another. If you don't think the Bible has a positive view of the fact that sex feels good, go read Song of Solomon this evening. Like, and then come talk to me, right? Like, it's uncomfortable if you read it. Some of the imagery, some of the metaphors, there's a lot of pomegranates and like palm trees, and it's just, it's out there. And yeah, sex is for pleasure, and the Bible says that's a good thing. Number two, sex is for children, right? Uh, Genesis 2, which Paul quotes uh, in this passage, he says um, that, (laughs) not sex is for children to have. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Sex is for bearing children, Alright? Okay. Oof. <laughs> Let me edit that next time. Alright. Everybody take a breath. All right. Sex is for bearing children. Okay. In Genesis two, God gives Adam and Eve this command be fruitful and multiply. Right? He tells them, I've made you in my own image. I want you to fill the world with other images of me. Right? Go out, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, right? Go make more people. Uh, a caveat, this doesn't mean that I don't believe in contraception, right? I'm not that crazy. Um, but I do think that part of the Bible's design for sex is that it would lead to children, right? That we would be, uh, that, that part of the design for a husband and wife is that they would have kids. Um, but again, right, combine this with sex being pleasurable, how good is God that this, like, this thing that makes more people in the world is also really, really fun? Uh, if you've been to my house, maybe you have seen our chickens. We have eight hens and one rooster. Uh, a hen is a female chicken. A rooster is a male chicken. Um, and it has led to some interesting conversations with my kids. Because this male chicken does things with the female chickens that um, don't really have any clear purpose to a five-year-old or a four-year-old, or a seven-year-old, and so they ask questions about it, but what happens is the rooster will follow around one of the hens, and she'll, like, avoid him for a little bit, but eventually he catches her, and he jumps on top of her, and pecks her in the head until she, like, leans forward, and then, like, rips feathers out of her until he's done, and then she, and then he hops off and goes this merry way, and she, like, you know, Fixes her hair, ruffles her feathers, and, like, goes about her merry way. It does not look like a pleasant experience for anybody involved. And, look, God could have made the way that we make people to not be pleasurable, right? To just be, like, I don't know, something else. But in God's goodness, this obedience to his command to fill the earth is a pleasurable thing, right? So sex is for pleasure. Sex is for making more people. Um, And then the long one, sex is for uniting, Sex and sexual intimacy communicates to someone else, I am yours, fully and completely, and always. Sex is vulnerability, and acceptance, and intimacy, and knowledge of the other person. Sex is saying with your body that with me your vulnerability will not be seen as weakness, your self-disclosure will not be used against you, and this intimacy will not be discarded. Look again at our passage, verses 15 and 16. Paul says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or don't you know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? In other words, Paul is saying, uh, think of the most impersonal sexual encounter that you can. Right? For him in that day, like think about sex with a prostitute. Right? Purely transactional, not relational at all. Um, there are modern equivalents we could draw. We'll just stick with what Paul says. Uh, even there, Paul says, sex unites, right? He who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. So, whether you're talking about a random hookup at a party, friends with benefits, makeout buddies, two people who've been dating for years, or married couples, sexual intimacy binds you together. Sex unites because sex communicates commitment whether we want it to or not. Right, like that's what it does because that's what it was designed to do. So you can call it casual sex, but it's still going to bind you together. Uh, Brian Sorgan campus minister at Old Miss, uses the illustration of super glue to talk about what sex does. It binds things together. Right, it's incredibly useful for fixing shoes, for fixing the dozens of things that my children break on a weekly basis. Right, I'm really thankful for super glue. But every once in a while I get it on my fingers. And even though I don't want it to bind my fingers to things, it does, right? Because super glue doesn't just work when I want it to work. It works because it works, right? It's designed to do what it does, and so it does that. And when it gets, like, when it binds things together, it makes it difficult and painful to separate. And this might be why you're still hung up on your ex, right? Whether you went all the way or just crossed lines. Again, that sexual intimacy bonded you together, Promises were made with your body, and they were taken back, and that hurts, and that pain doesn't go away quickly. This um, uniting superglue effect of sex is why the Bible reserves it for marriage, right? Like, in the world's view, sex is casual. Like, it's an option. It's something that you can do and then, like, go about your day, but in the Bible's view, sex binds things together, and therefore, it's reserved for marriage, not because it doesn't work like that, not because it doesn't bind things together outside of marriage, not because it's bad, but because it's so powerful, because it actually does what it's designed to do. Because sexual intimacy outside of marriage actually communicates a lie, right? Again, sex is saying with your body that we are united, that we're one, that that I'm not going anywhere. But outside of marriage, you haven't said that about your heart or your time or your life or your money so sex outside of marriage is like saying, I am willing to be united to you physically, but not spiritually, financially, relationally, or in any other way, which is selfish and a lie. Right? But in marriage, where there are promises of fidelity and unity and permanence, that physical unity is joined with a spiritual unity and a relational unity and a financial unity and a every other kind of unity you can think of and is beautiful. Marriage isn't where sex goes to die, it's where sex is finally safe, where sex finally brings life. Think about it as something like, it's, it's so powerful that we have to be careful around it, right? It's, it's like a firework, right? Fireworks is a good metaphor for sex, right? Um, if you use fireworks in the right way, they are incredible, Right, they're beautiful. They're really loud. Like it was really fun taking my girls this past Fourth of July in the back of my truck to Park in Silva and just like sit and watch the fireworks. But what would happen if a firework went off in my garage or in this room? Right, like people would be deaf and blind, and like maybe somebody would die. We would definitely light something on fire. Right, because it's powerful. Right, and in the right context, it's beautiful. But when it's used incorrectly. It can cause incredible damage. And that's why in the Song of Solomon, um, this book of the Bible that just celebrates sex and marital intimacy, it it gets interrupted every once in a while. It kind of comes out of nowhere, right? Like you're cruising along through this like Hebrew semi-erotic poetry and somebody yanks the handbrake on the car. And you come to a screeching halt four times in the book where it says, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Don't make those promises with your body, in other words, until they've been backed up with some real covenant safety. That's why I said last week that in your dating relationships, I think the line uh, should be between affection and arousal, right? In other words, avoid stirring up or awakening love. Because arousal is an escalator, okay? Some of you who stuck around for the Q&A heard this. Arousal is an escalator. And we want it to be an elevator, And here's what I mean by that. Um, You want, with your boyfriend and girlfriend, to be able to walk into the metaphorical elevator, push the button for the making-out floor, go up there, hang out for 15 minutes to three hours, uh, and then get back in the elevator, push the button for the lobby, and go about your day, right? That's That's what we all want to be able to do with the person we're dating but that's not how it works, right? In actual experience, that arousal is not an elevator where you say, like, I'm gonna go to this level and I'm gonna hang out there. No, it's an escalator, right? It's designed to get you all the way to the top. And if you've ever ridden an escalator and tried to stay at a certain level on an escalator, right, you do that thing where you're in the mall and you're like, I wonder how long I can stay on this escalator, and you turn around and try and walk down the escalator that's going up, it takes an incredible amount of effort and resistance and perseverance that we just don't have, right? We lack all kinds of self-control. Look, here's another way to say it. No married couple makes out for an hour and then says, that was fun, sweet dreams, I'll see you in the morning, right? Like, no married couple makes out for an hour period, right? Because it's an escalator that's designed to take you to the top, right? And making out for an hour is, like, not fun for married people because... The escalator wants to keep going up. You can laugh. It's uncomfortable. Um, again, that physical intimacy, that arousal, is designed to drive you to its conclusion. The escalator wants to get to the top. That's what it's designed to do, right? So Solomon, in the Song of Solomon, gives this warning. Don't stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Not because it's bad or ugly or dirty, but because it's so good and it's so powerful and it's so binding. And this is true not just in our dating relationships, but... But in everything, right? This call, this encouragement of do not stir up awake or awaken love until it pleases applies just as much to our thoughts as it does to what we do with our bodies. And here's that really fun word, right? Lust. Basically the mental version of what we've been talking about. Right? Like letting your mind dwell on that cute boy in class. Or that girl you see at the gym. Or watching shows or movies or reading books or visiting websites that stir up and awaken love. Right? A desire for sexual intimacy that is, at its core, selfish. Lust, again, doesn't care about the other person, just what they can do for me. And I want to encourage you, avoid that temptation, right? Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. It's about the only thing he ever says flee from, right? Like, you never hear him say, flee from murder, right? Like, we just know we shouldn't kill people, right? He doesn't say, flee from lying. He's just like, just be honest with each other. But with sexual immorality, he says, flee, get as far away as you can. And so maybe that means there's some shows you just don't watch anymore. Maybe that means there's some music that you really like, but it's just not helpful for you. Maybe it means that you get a membership to the Jackson County Rec Center that's just a little bit down the road uh, instead of going to the gym here at campus because there are far fewer attractive people at the Jackson County Rec Center than there are at the campus rec center. Maybe it means your computer lives in your living room and not in your bedroom. Look, we're not called to deny our sexuality and our sexual desires. We're not called to feel shame about having them. But we are called to be self-controlled in what we do with them, both physically and mentally. And yes, that's difficult in a sex-saturated world. But is it really surprising that following a crucified king would involve some level of difficulty? Right? Jesus led us to expect this. He said, following me is a lot like carrying a cross. All right, uh, Note on modesty, and then we'll talk about Jesus, and then we'll be done. And you can all exhale and not see me for two weeks, because we don't have large group next week, because it's Easter week. Um, Aw, that's sweet. I heard some disappointment. That's great. Okay, modesty. Um, Number one, we are responsible for our own sin, okay? Paul, again, verse 18, commands us, flee from sexual immorality. It's a pretty strong command. We are responsible for our own sin, And you do not get to blame others for your sin, right? Guys, your struggle with lust is not girls' fault. Girls, your struggle with lust is not guys' fault. At the same time, we are called to love one another and to bear one another up and to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And in in this area of sexual purity, of holiness when it comes to sex, modesty is what that's called, right? Uh, Modesty is our loving help of those around us as we together pursue obedience to Christ in the area of sexual sin and temptation. And again, of course, what everybody thinks of first when they think of modesty is brought up is what women wear, right? And yes, ladies, it's an act of love towards your brothers in Christ to dress in a modest way. I'm not going to tell you what that is, right? Like, not a thing that I should do. If you need some guidance on that, we have two wonderful women on staff that would love to talk to you about that. Their numbers are on your handout text them about it. They're really excited to do that. Um, Okay, but modesty is such a bigger category than what do girls wear, right? Um, As we said earlier, women have sex drives too. They also experience sexual desire and temptation. So guys, are you dressing modestly, right? Men, it is an act of love (laughs) towards your sisters in Christ to dress modestly, uh, but it's not just what we wear. It's how we carry ourselves and how we interact with others, right? Physical touch comes into this. Um, guys, I'm going to be blunt. Keep your hands off of girls, right? Maybe it adds unnecessary temptation. Maybe it's unwelcome. But, like, the arm around the shoulder, the hand on the lower back, the hand on the thigh when you're sitting together, stop. Like, you don't need to do that. I'm going to help the girls in the room by just telling you you don't need to do that. Girls, too. Like, when you flirt, when you interact with people, what are you insinuating? How are you using physical touch? I know, again, that I sound like an old fuddy-duddy here, right? (laughs) Like, Andrew, like, this is ridiculous. I just want to encourage you to give some thought to aiding one another in pursuit of holiness in these things. Right? Because there's so much temptation in the world. Again, our world is saturated with sex. It's a constant bombardment of temptation. But how great would it be if your Christian community was a place where you could exhale, right? Where you didn't have to worry about, like, Man, I want to hang out with those people, but I'm going to struggle with, like, un- unnecessary sexual temptation there. Like, how great would it be if your Christian community was a place that just for a little bit you were free from that? Let's seek to love one another in that way. All right, let's talk about Jesus, and we'll be done. Um, what... What if, like, you're hearing all this and you're like, well, I've screwed up, I'm done. Uh, what if you're carrying with you shame over things that you've done in the past? Um, what if in the future, like, you, you, you fully desire to follow Christ, but you fall to temptation again? What do you do? Right before this passage, uh, Paul writes this. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Which sounds really bad, right? But then he goes on, verse 11, and such were some of you, right? He's writing to the church. And he says to the church in Corinth, like, this was some of you guys, but you were washed, you were made holy, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Jesus is the one who takes away our shame of everything, not just sexual sin, but, but shame of anything. Right? And no matter what we've done, we are united to him. Right? He's taken our sin onto himself and he's given us his righteousness. As it says in our passage tonight, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Right? You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own, you are bought. With a price, and again, verse fifteen. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? So we, we've talked in all the ways about the way that I think the world devalues sex, right? It, it views it too casually, and sex in the Bible is much more important than that. But at the same time, the world like overvalues sex and says it's everything, right? If you haven't done it, you're weird, you're backward, you're to be pitied. And what the Bible says about sex is that it's this incredibly good and useful thing, right? It binds men and women together in the safety of marriage. It's a good gift of God, but it's not the ultimate gift of God, right? It's not the best gift of God. The way the Bible talks about sex is that it's actually a foretaste of what our eternal union with Christ looks like, right? So that, that any sex you would enjoy in this life would pale in comparison to the pleasure of, of, of union with Christ, for eternity. The Bible, the story of the Bible ends with a wedding, right? Where we, the church, are, are married to Christ, our bride, and we experience unity and oneness and perfect acceptance with him forever, right? And the joy of sex in this life is just a shadow, like just a, a, a poor copy of that bliss for all eternity. And so at the, at the same time, our world manages to like devalue sex and overvalue sex, But if we look at the way the Bible talks about sex, we can look forward to it and anticipate it, but not, like, put our humanity on it, right? Not, like, put the weight of our personhood on it. We can enjoy it as a good gift of God in the right way, right? Recognizing it for the gift that it is, but not putting so much value on it. And again, take encouragement in what Paul says uh, in chapter 6, verse 11. Such were some of you, but sex is not the unpardonable sin right? Sexual immorality is not unforgivable. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, your love for us, your kindness to us. Um, Father, we confess that this is, uh, again, an awkward topic and an uncomfortable topic and for many a source of shame and embarrassment. Uh, I pray, Father, that if anyone is carrying that tonight, that they would see you Uh, that they would see Christ welcoming them, um, conversing with them, forgiving them. Uh, Father, I pray that if we're uh, struggling in these areas, that you would, by your Spirit, give us strength, self-control, self-reliance, self-denial. pray that you would help us to help one another in pursuit of these things. Uh, That, Father, we would be encouraging one another and not adding unnecessary temptation or causing one another to stumble. Uh, Father, in all of this, help us to see Christ. And help us to use sex rightly, to see it as this this thing that points to an even greater joy and an even greater unity. Uh, That even if we go our whole lives without it, uh, we are not less than human, and we will not enjoy less of you in the world to come. I pray, Father, that you would set our hearts on that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.